Kia ora, I'm Emile Donovan, and today on The Detail, on February the 8th, 2013, nine years ago, New Zealand's then Prime Minister John Key met his Australian counterpart, Julia Gillard, in Queenstown. They talked about the treatment of New Zealand citizens living in Australia, the issue of sports doping, and... Asylum seekers. Now, Mr Key was very coy about it, but there seems to be a suggestion about whether New Zealand might look at offering to take some of those people from Australia um, as refugees. The next day, a surprise announcement. New Zealand had agreed to resettle 150 refugees from Australia every year for the next three years. This was a big development. Australia at the time was grappling with a big increase in refugees arriving by boat, but maintained a hard-line policy despite strong international criticism. The deal with New Zealand was no panacea, but it would help alleviate some of that pressure, and of course it would provide certainty and safe refuge for hundreds of people in the most desperate of situations. But just a few months later, this happened. Australia has a new Prime Minister. In a dramatic night in Canberra, Kevin Rudd challenged for the leadership and defeated Julia Gillard in a caucus vote. And then this. The Liberal Coalition won a resounding victory in Australia last night, so the first word goes to the new Prime Minister, Tony Abbott. And a few months later, this. Australia's Prime Minister, Tony Abbott, has been toppled by Malcolm Turnbull. In the shock late-night vote, Malcolm Turnbull was elected the new leader of the Liberal Party, 54 to 44. Throughout... Oh, oh, no, still going. Canberra is in chaos with Malcolm Turnbull's futurist Prime Minister looking all but over. He's probably got a few hours left in the job. He's probably waking up right now thinking, honey, that's it, it's all over. In a second round of voting, Mr Morrison emerged victorious, 45 votes to 40. Throughout all this, New Zealand's offer to resettle some of those refugees remained on the table. But on the table it remained, gathering dust until last week. New Zealand's helping bail Australia out of a long-running controversy over asylum seekers locked up in offshore detention centres. Under a deal that's taken years to broker, New Zealand will take 150 refugees a year for three years from Nauru or other makeshift detention centres as part of our refugee quota. So today on the podcast, how Australia's hardline immigration policy has changed over the decades, how this deal will work, and why it's happening now. Let me probably go back about two decades. That's that's probably the best place to start. Stephen Jidgets is the ABC's Asia-Pacific foreign affairs reporter. Around 2000, we started to see an increase in the number of people trying to come to Australia by boat, refugees. And this very quickly became an enormously contentious issue in Australian politics. There was anxiety about the fact that large numbers of people were coming to Australia by unconventional means. There was a concern that many of these people may not be legitimate or true refugees. And there was a broad political debate in Australia that was at times pretty feverish about the prospect of, you know, thousands and thousands of people uh, coming to Australia by boat. The minister has implied that babies and children are in hospital or may end up in hospital as part of some deliberate, coordinated attempt to blackmail this government. Now, that is a disgusting statement. They will go to offshore processing, and that's where their claims will be assessed. They will never, ever be resettled in Australia, and that will be the... Under the Howard government, we saw a system of, of mandatory detention. Now, it did exist before, before Howard in many ways, but it was built upon it under the Howard government 
expanded quite radically. Children searched with metal detectors, just one of the security measures imposed on scores of refugee and migrant children who were held for months and even years by the Australian government at one of their refugee detention centres on the Pacific island of Nauru. Labor loosened some of those laws when it came to power in 2007, not all of them, and not long after that, we saw a, a steady increase uh, in the number of people coming to Australia by boat. And we also saw a large number, or at least a, rather, I should say, a small number of very, very tragic accidents um, in the um, in the lead up to uh, in, in the in the um, in the wake of that decision, in particular, uh, in December, I think it was in 2010. A major rescue operation is continuing tonight on remote Christmas Island, where at least 27 asylum seekers have lost their lives. The small wooden boat had been packed with scores of asylum seekers, but it ran into heavy seas off Australia's Christmas Island Wednesday. An eyewitness said the engine had stalled. Their wooden boat smashed into rocks at Christmas Island early this morning. As many as 50 people drowned. Locals did all they could to rescue those in the water, but they say the conditions were so treacherous their own lives were in danger. It was without question, I think, the worst civilian maritime disaster in Australia uh, in more than a century. And it solidified a determination, a bipartisan then determination in Australia, that something had to be done to try and stop the flow of boats. Now, part of that response was basically a revival of elements of the mandatory offshore detention system, including a series of uh, difficult and ultimately not very successful arrangements with other third countries to try and essentially create a disincentive for people to get on boats by saying, if you get on a boat, you won't be able to resettle in Australia. Instead, you'll be placed in a detention camp, whether in PNG or in Nauru or in another country. In 2013, so this is a few years after um, that disaster at Christmas Island, Julia Gillard, who's looking for places to resettle people who are in detention, announces a deal with, of course, John Key to resettle 150 refugees a year uh, from the Australian system. And that was going to be part of New Zealand's annual quota of, I believe it was about 750 at the time. Now, that deal was very contentious. The opposition, the coalition opposition, was quite critical at the time. And then, of course, that later that year, about six months after the agreement was struck, Tony Abbott was elected prime minister. The coalition comes to power in Australia. And then Abbott effectively quashes the New Zealand deal. And he actually said, if I remember correctly at the time there, people should not think that New Zealand is some sort of consolation prize if you can't come to Australia. So the coalition basically squashes the deal. They do that because they see, you know, that New Zealand is a very appealing place to come, which I think is objectively true. And they're worried that providing that option to people smugglers will put what they used to call sugar on the table, create an incentive for people to come uh, illegally to Australia by boat in the hope of either being resettled in New Zealand or resettling in New Zealand and then coming to Australia down the track under the very free movement between the two countries. Pressing on, it's a bit of a history lesson, but it is an interesting one. Fascinating, yeah. November 2016, Turnbull strikes a a deal with Obama for the US to take uh, 1,250 refugees. It is a one-off agreement. It will not be repeated. It is only available to those currently in the regional processing centres. It will not be available to any persons who seek to reach Australia 
in the future. But then still insists that the, the, the New Zealand deal is off the table. So that that's, again, uh, I think for a very similar reason, a fear that it would create a, a too powerful an incentive uh, for people to get on boats. So that's where it stood for a long time. Scott Morrison also, uh, you know, refused the offer. But as you say, a few months ago, or quite a few months ago, we did get this sense of softening, a willingness of the Australian side to, uh, to, to, to compromise and a willingness to look at the offer made by New Zealand and take it up. And then not long ago, of course, we finally have the, the deal landed with uh, 150 refugees for three years being sent to New Zealand. What changed? I think there is perhaps slightly less anxiety in the federal government at the moment about the flow of, of people coming to Australia by boat. I think there is a feeling that some of Australia's work in source countries, for lack of a better phrase, um, you know, in the south of India, Sri Lanka, uh, also Southeast Asian countries where um, large numbers of, uh, of refugees have, have uh, essentially temporarily resettled with the hope of coming to Australia, a sense that that problem is less pressing. There is also a recognition that there are now a relatively small number of people in the wake of the, the deals with the US and others that have to be, that, you know, that, 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 are, that are actually now still languishing in places like Nauru and, and onshore detention in Australia. Of course, it is worth mentioning that a large number of people now do remain in Manus Island, uh, which used to be under the control of the Australian government. It's now a facility under PNG control. So there are big questions still over that cohort, but let, let's leave that aside for the moment. There was also, you know, there is visible political controversy and a lot of distress in many circles in Australia about the fact that relatively small numbers of people have now been languishing for a very long period of time. People in the camps come from all over the Middle East, Africa and Asia, places including Iran, Afghanistan and Myanmar. Human rights groups have strongly criticised the way they've been treated in the camps. Al Jazeera investigations found they were run more like prisons than processing facilities. A recognition, I think, in the government that they want to find solutions for these people to clear the decks, if you like. It's hard to point to any one sort of single compelling factor, but I think all of those things sort of fed into a willingness in the government to try and reach an agreement with New Zealand, which is, of, of course, what they've done. And then, of course, it's also worth saying that... Uh, uh, the government is making it very clear that whilst they're allowing people who did arrive by boat to come to New Zealand under this arrangement, it's a retrospective arrangement, right? Yes. Not a prospective one. So they're still saying that if you arrive illegally, as they put it, using their terminology, um, or arrive by boat after the, this day when it was announced a few days ago, you know, you, you won't be resettled in New Zealand. You will be sent to, to, into detention. So they're hoping that that will essentially create a disincentive under a deal that's taken years to broken, New Zealand will take 150 refugees a year for three years from Nauru or other makeshift detention centres as part of our refugee quota. Meanwhile, Australia is sticking by its border protection policy and says the deal doesn't change anything. Is 150 a lot for us? Uh, re relatively speaking, yes. So our overall refugee quota is uh, 1,500. Sam Suchdeva is Newsroom's National Affairs Editor. So it would represent 10% of that. But actually, in the last few years, we, we haven't really got close to that annual quota simply because of COVID, you know, the pandemic, borders being shut down and just that difficulty of travel. So it is going to be a, a fairly sizable chunk, um, certainly relatively speaking, in the last few years who are, are coming in. 
that's an interesting point because so is that a cumulative kind of thing? So if we don't use up our refugee quota, if we don't, you, you, yeah, it feels weird to say that, but I guess that's it's true, right? Yeah. Like, yeah. If we don't take fifteen hundred per year, say we only take five hundred, does it carry over? Does that mean that next year we take two and a half thousand, or does it reset every year? I, I believe it resets. Uh, I think the idea is that you know this is this is the set number in a year. If we go under that for whatever reason, then then that's kind of it. It's not. It doesn't build up. And you know, certainly, I know in the, this case there have been there have been some arguments that actually we shouldn't be including the refugees from Nauru in in that quota. Australia's acceptance of New Zealand's long-standing offer to take 450 refugees over three years from detention centres in the Pacific has been criticised for not going far enough. That, you know, we've got this, the, the war in Ukraine, there's a lot of Ukrainians who are looking for, um, for places to settle in, so there's actually a lot of demand, uh, you know, unusual demand. And then there is just the, the normal um, refugee intake, all those seeking seeking shelter and, and refuge in, in other countries. So, you know, why are we filling up that quota, so to speak, when there are probably many more who would be um, equally deserving of our help? One of the trickiest parts of this, you know, a long-standing issue in this overarching sort of thing is the backdoor issue. Can you explain what that is? Yeah, so uh, this has been one of the sticking points from the, the very, almost the very start, really. So the, uh, the issue is that Australia doesn't want to take these refugees in, you know, but say they agree, yes, come to New Zealand, um, we'll look after you. You know, eventually, it does take a while, it's not overnight, but um, these refugees will become New Zealand residents, then permanent residents, then citizens. And the argument was, well, you know, what's what's to stop them becoming New Zealand citizens and then jumping back back across the ditch and, uh, you know, uh, deciding to, to live in Australia indefinitely and rely on the systems there. So that was, you know... One of the the issues on the Australian side, I think they tried to put legislation in place to stop that from happening, but couldn't get that across the line. Um, and in the end, they seem to have just kind of given up. I mean, it, it's, it's sort of a moot point, really, because actually, you know, as we've talked about, New Zealand citizens don't really get that much support in, in Australia compared to, you know, as if, if they were actually Australian citizens. So you're probably going to be better off in terms of support for social services and, and um, those issues staying in, in New Zealand than, than going to Australia. I found it fascinating to hear you speak about the, I guess, the political calculus of it. And the idea that you seem to be suggesting is that the government in Australia maintained this hard line to send a message, a discouraging message, and the maintaining of that line has almost had the desired effect. Fewer people are travelling to Australia by boat. The decision to take New Zealand up almost speaks to the relative political success of that very controversial viewpoint. Does that make sense? Yeah, it does. I think the government would probably, I mean, even if they wouldn't sort of elaborate, wouldn't phrase it in that way necessarily, um, I think there's, I, I think that that's, uh, that they would regard that as as a pretty accurate summary. I mean, they would argue that the the tough border policies have done to some extent that they've done their job, that they've created a disincentive. Now, refugee advocates contest that furiously. They say, one, the inhumanity of the Australian system is morally unjustifiable and that the um, utilitarian argument put out that you have to make some people, you know, um, suffer in order to dissuade others and 
thereby preventing an evil trade, you know, from from springing up again, is simply is simply morally indefensible because you can't you can't put people in this excruciating position simply um, on, on any basis. Um, but leaving leaving that debate to one side, I think the government does feel like the problem is less urgent than it was. No doubt, it does attribute that to its tough border policies. It would say that that has made it very clear that Australia is unyielding on this point, and therefore there's no point. Uh, for for people to to get on boats, and that general feeling that there is a less pressing prospect of people getting on boats that 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 that, that there's not a, that, that it's unlikely that we'll see that people of the that any sort of thing like the numbers we used to see of people um, trying to come to Australia by boat that probably does inform the government's calculus that they can now make this concession. I think it is a, a concession without any risk or with only a small risk of it uh, having a uh, a so-called pull factor. Has public sentiment wavered or changed on this issue over the past decade or so? Look, that's a really good question. Um, I don't know the answer. I know that there is quite a bit of polling out there. I'm, I'm absolutely not an expert in it, and I haven't looked recently at any sort of detailed polling um, that, that tries to drill down into any of these questions. I guess the narrative, the broad political narrative is that, um, or accepted wisdom, if you like, in Canberra, is that there still remains a broad-based support for relatively tough border protection and the principles of mandatory detention, the idea that people who get on a boat, for example, should not immediately be allowed to, to, to resettle in Australia. But there is also, you do get the sense, and I haven't really seen data necessarily backing this up, but I, I as I said, I haven't drilled into it, uh, that there is increasing discomfort perhaps across all parties, voters from all parties, about um, the fate of those who have been languishing in detention for many, many years now. I mean, there have been some very well-publicised cases uh, in Australia of uh, well-known um, refugees, you know, speaking to their to their distress. The Kurdish writer and Manus Island refugee, Beruz Bouchani, says he wants readers of his now award-winning book to learn how Australia is, he says, systematically torturing people offshore. We are living in this inhuman situation, so I think uh, I don't feel that I should celebrate this award. Uh, and their, their mental health... Uh, woes uh, in this, in this, it, it, whilst whilst in detention. So, whilst I'm not an expert and I stand to be corrected, I suspect that there is still, broadly speaking, support for relatively tough policies, but perhaps some softening across the board for those people who've been in a sometimes agonising position of, of limbo. For, for many, many years. And that may be feeding into the government's calculus as well. Yeah, well, because I, I guess the subtext to that question is there is an election coming up in Australia. The Liberal Party is is, is falling behind. And perhaps a deeply cynical view of this might be... I think there's only one reason, and that is uh, we've got a coalition government in Australia is facing massive defeat in the in an election which is going to take place in May. Um, I think they, the, the, the guts of this really is a face-saving gesture. Is that a narrative that has sort of been espoused in Australia or is that too reductive political games, do you think? Well, no, I mean, it's interesting. So, that, I mean, look, I mean, the, the coalition will continue to argue that Labor is, you know, weak on borders, etc., and that last time they got in power, they, they, uh, they relaxed, um, you know, um, immigration laws um, and illegal immigration laws with catastrophic impact and the loss of hundreds of lives 
uh, and and all the rest. But it, it doesn't feel, at least to me, like it's shaping up as a major theme in, in this election. And that's precisely for the reason that we were talking about earlier. They're just that we just don't have the flows of, of people um, coming through that we used to several years ago. So there is a sense that this is a bit of a I mean, I, I, I hope this doesn't come across as um, cold-blooded, but that it, but this is how the government might frame it as, as a bit of a, a, a legacy issue. What they're dealing now is the legacy of policies that were put in place to deal with a problem quite a few years ago. So are we doing Australia a favour here? And if so, could there be a softening in their stance towards 501s, for example? New Zealanders who've lived in Australia for decades and are deported back here after committing crimes or failing good character tests. Um, I think I think New Zealand has absolutely done Australia a solid. The government of Australia will be happy to have this solution offered out to them, and they're they're obviously happy enough uh, to take it. Will it have any impact on the rather fraught question of Australia's policy towards the New Zealand citizenship, uh, who have spent their whole lives or many many years in Australia and who then commit crimes and are then sent back to New Zealand uh, to New Zealand's unending frustration and distress? I don't think it will. I'm not ruling out a quid pro quo, but the political calculus for the government on this question of dual citizens or non-citizens committing crimes seems pretty set. If the coalition wins power at the next election, I can't see any sign that they're going to give ground on, on that particular question. This is corrosive to our relationship. And I've shared uh, privately what I've shared publicly today with PM Morrison. It has done real damage, there's no doubt about it. But Australia, of course, always has more levers at its disposal than New Zealand. You know, there's not that much that New Zealand you know, can really do about it other than complain. Any measures that are more, you know, forceful or coercive than that will probably rebound on New Zealand uh, much more than it would on Australia uh, and would probably fundamentally be, be counterproductive. A slightly more interesting, I guess, or, 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 or difficult to answer question is what happens if Labor gets in? It's signalled that it's willing to take another look at this, um, but it hasn't been super definitive. I suspect that New Zealand officials and, and the Labor government in New Zealand have high hopes that if uh, if Labor does win, that they might be able to engineer a bit of a change in policy, a softening of policy. But I wouldn't be brave enough to make any predictions at this stage. A new Labor government will have an awful lot of priorities on its plate. It will be conscious that it has a political weak spot when it comes to some of these issues. It won't rush to treat people who commit crimes in Australia any more easily than the coalition has. So whilst I think there might be room to move there, um, I don't think that this deal necessarily signals a quid pro quo. That's it for today. I'm Emil Donovan. The Detail is public interest journalism funded through New Zealand On Air and produced by Newsroom for RNZ. You can get us downloaded free to your mobile device every weekday from any podcast platform. And if you're using Apple, please leave us a rating so others can find us too. Today's episode was engineered by Rangi Poak and produced by Sarah Robson. And thanks to Stephen Jedrick and Sam Suchdeva. Matewa. <laughs>